Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. If we could all please move forward, come to the front. Thanks to you, that means you too, since you jacked me into this. Thanks, guys. So, like Gio said, just a quick bit of context, even though he so expertly summarized last week's um, chapter. What we've just seen happen in Joseph's life is he's been imprisoned, and um, while in prison, a butler and a baker join him, um, and they both have dreams. And so... Joseph is given the opportunity to interpret these dreams um, and with the butler who he tells will be restored he asks one thing and that's that he remembers him when you come out just don't forget me don't forget about me let Pharaoh whoever know what I've done for you here um, so they may show me the same mercy I mean of course knowing Joseph's luck up until this point um, he's completely forgotten the butler goes out and forgets about him. Um, and up until now, really, like I just said, Joseph hasn't had a lot of wins. Um, in fact, he's been beaten and bruised in every possible way. The closest he came to a win was being elevated in Potiphar's household, and we know how that ended up. And this is where we're at now. Joseph has had absolutely no wins up until this point in, this, in his story. Um, when I was younger, I was part of the school chess team. I know how cool that makes me sound. Um, but the reason I initially joined the team was because I found out that um, after the matches, which they would play on Friday afternoons, they would get free gourmet food. So I thought, you know, not that the food at my house was not great, but it's always nice to change things up every now and then. Anyway, I joined the team, and uh, funnily enough, and humbly speaking, I became very good. Um, and our team was very good, very competitive. We used to go to one-day tournaments and win. We used to compete in state championships. Um, we won the regional tournament almost every single year. Um, we were treated like heroes in the school. At least we thought we were heroes. I'm sure a lot of people thought we were losers. Um, but we were very good. Um, I'm trash now, so it's okay for me to say that. But the key that we discovered to being a good chess player comes down to two things. The first is patience. Um, you need to be able to take your time before playing the right move because impatience leads to poor decision-making um, and errors. So the first key to being a good chess player is patience. The second is strategy. You need to be able to think, to think two or three steps ahead of your opponent. Um, and you need to even be able to anticipate what their next step will be or how they might respond to your next move. So the two keys to being a good chess player are patience and strategy. And the thing about chess is sometimes it takes a lot of moves to realize that the strategy each player is utilizing. 
Um, and at the end of games, you discover why each move was made and at the specific time they were made. And when you read the story of Joseph, you can't help but feel that God is playing a very slow, um, but one of the greatest games of chess. He is the ultimate chess master. At times it looks like the opponent is winning, taking pieces away from Joseph's, Joseph's board, um, as we've seen, you know, being betrayed by his brothers, taken captive in Egypt, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, being imprisoned, forgotten by the one person he thought might help him. He's just being beaten. At this point in his story, his king is apparently in a check position. Okay, um, But in the passage today, we see God's strategy start to take shape, start to take form, um, and to turn the table in Joseph's favor. The checkmate won't arrive till later, but today's moves set us up for later. Um, and so we realize in the passage today that God is truly the chess master in each of our lives. Um, and we'll start by reading chapter 41. Do you have a microphone that goes around? So it is a long chapter, but um, hopefully not a long talk. The first half will take it a little bit slower, and then we'll fly through the second half of the passage. So if someone can just read the first uh, eight verses. Geo, please, thanks. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Thanks, dear. So the key verse that I wanted to focus on was verse 8. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. The opening move um, in a game of chess is usually the most straightforward one. Usually each player will just place their pawn into a defensive position, usually in front of the king or the queen. Um, what's it called when you put the pawn in front of the queen? This one is... There's a show named after that move. Very good. The Queen's Gambit. That's usually, typically, what each player will do. Just to start their game off. But every now and then, a player might start with something called the English opening. The English opening is when the player moves their pawn that is in front of their bishop. Okay? And it's an unusual move because it's not common. It's not common. Um, and the player makes that move typically to unsettle their opponent um, because it's unexpected. And because it is unexpected, if the opponent is untrained or unskilled, then it causes a disturbance. It causes a disturbance. It's a move that causes the opponent to think, 
Why has this disturbance occurred? How am I supposed to react now? And in the Bible, you see that that's often God's first move when he's about to effect a change. That he creates a disturbance. He does something unexpected. He unsettles someone that has the power or the influence to make a change. Um, in the book of Esther, the turning point comes when king, the king wakes up. And what does it say? He wakes up and he is disturbed. He was in a sweat. He was in a fluster. And while he's disturbed, he asks the record keepers to bring the Chronicles of the Kings. And during his reading of the Chronicles of the King, he asks what happened to the man, Mordecai, who defended the king. And they tell him nothing. We didn't do anything for him. So he says, tomorrow I want you to honor him. And that is when the turning point of the book comes. Because if that never happened, then when he found out that his advisor was trying to kill this man that he just honored, if that never happened, he wouldn't have cared. So what? Who is he? He's no one to me. But because that happened, it changed the whole story. The whole story flipped on its head. In the New Testament, we see it as well. Um, Joseph is disturbed by dreams. Every time he has a dream, not, not this Joseph, Joseph in the New Testament, every time he has a dream, he makes a move to defend the Holy Family. God's first move is often a disturbance. Um, and it happens today as well. These same stories happen today. A few years ago, I, was, I remember I was in an airport and I got a call um, from an old Sunday school servant. And he asked me, are you free tonight? And I said, oh, I'm actually about to take a flight. So I'm not free, I'm sorry. Why? And then he mentioned um, the name of a boy that we hadn't seen at church in a long time. He said, I'm going out with him tonight. I would have loved for you to join me. And I was like, how'd that happen? Like, how did you manage to... I haven't seen him in years. How did you manage to get in touch with him? He said, it's a funny story. I uh, couldn't sleep one night, and so I asked my wife, um, I turned around and asked my wife, who's that uh, spiky-haired kid, he had spiky hair, spiky-haired kid that used to be in my Sunday school class? And his wife told him uh, his name, and he said, do you have his number by any chance? She said, no, I would have his number. So he couldn't sleep, he got up in the middle of the night, went to his laptop and looked through his old Sunday school lists, found his name, found his number, tried messaging in the middle of the night. Of course, he's not getting a response. Tried calling the next morning, didn't get a response. And it was during Passion Week. And then he sort of gave up. That same night, Thursday, it was a Thursday night of Passion Week. That same night, he came to church, walked in from that back door over there. And the first person he laid eyes on when he walked into the church was this boy by chance. We hadn't seen him in years. He has one sleepless night thinking about him. The first person he sees when he walks into church is that boy. Immediately he says to him, next week I'm taking you out. And he told me that's how he got in touch with him. That's how it all happened. Um, whenever God wants to action change in the world, he disturbs the heart of one person. That's his opening move. 
But on an even smaller scale, whenever he wants to action change in our own lives, he will disturb our hearts also. You'll feel unsettled. There'll be a feeling of, I'm not at peace. Something's, something's not right. I'm disturbed. There's a really beautiful quote by St. Francis of Assisi who says, Disturb us, it's a prayer. He says, Disturb us, O Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves. Whenever we find ourselves doing the same thing in our spiritual lives over and over and over again, this is the prayer that we need to pray. Stir my heart, Lord, to move for you. Stir my heart, Lord, to make changes in my life. I'm too comfortable. I'm too well pleased. Something is, I need you to unsettle me. I need you to disturb me, Lord, so that I can make changes in my life. That is his opening move. Almost always. Read verses 9 to 13, please. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpre interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream, and it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. The butler in the um, story of Joseph always frustrates me, um, but it frustrated me even more when I found out how much time had passed from when he was restored to his position to this current situation. Does anyone know how much time? It was mentioned in last week's Bible study. Two years, two whole years. So much time had passed that not only had he forgotten to mention just in passing some miraculous thing that happened to him, but he also meant, forgot Joseph's name. Verse says that there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the... He forgot his name. He'd completely forgotten him. But we see how God's opening move leads to this current situation, leads to this reminder. Um, in chess, a fork is a tactic uh, where a piece, one piece, will attack multiple pieces on the board at the same time. So you often see it with, you know, the horse might be attacking the king and the castle at the same time. Um, when the king is involved, it's called a forced move. Because okay, you're forcing the other player to move their king because you have to protect the king, right? And essentially, it means that you're going to lose the castle. This move right here in this passage um, is God's fork play where he forces a move. And what's he forcing? He is forcing the butler to remember the work that occurred in his life. Um, God could have used anything to disturb Pharaoh. He could have used anything. But why do we say that it was a forced move on the butler's part? On God's part, on the butler, sorry? Because what did he use to disturb Pharaoh? A dream. He used a dream. Because he knew that it would trigger the butler's memory and force his hand. He's again disturbing the butler, um, but this time with a memory, and it's so vivid to him. This is how you escaped. This is how you escaped prison. And now I am disturbing your king. St. John Chrysostom says, See God's wonderful design. 
I'm going to change that to see God's wonderful chess move. First, he lets him have his recourse to all those considered wise in those parts so that when their ignorance was demonstrated, then this prisoner, this captive, this slave, this Hebrew might be brought forward and unravel what was a mystery to so many. And thus Joseph might make clear to everyone the grace that had descended on him from above. So when all the wise men arrived and were unable to say anything or even open their mouths, then the chief cupbearer's memory returned. And he informed Pharaoh of what had happened to him, saying, Today I am going to bring light to my fault. God orchestrated this entire redemption story around a dream. Around a dream. To remind this butler or this cupbearer um, of his faults and wake him up. And sometimes God's the same with us. Um, sometimes he gives us just a gentle tap on the shoulder. Um, corners us into a position and just says, Remember, remember what I've done for you in your life. Um, he does this because I think God actually gets frustrated when we forget. He does. We've seen it. Like we've seen evidence that God gets frustrated when we forget his working in our life. There's a really funny um, passage. It's not one particular passage, but um, chronological passages in the book of Matthew and also in the book of John. I think it's either between Matthew 12 and 14 or Matthew 14 and 16. But Matthew, the first passage, talks about Christ feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. What happens in the next passage? Christ feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. That's what it says. So the first passage, he feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Then the very next passage... He feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. And then the very next passage, something funny happens. Christ is walking up with his disciples um, up a mountain, and he's talking about leaven. Okay, and he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. Okay, like he's trying to make a metaphor between bread and the Pharisees. And what do the disciples, and he's upset, he's pretty upset. As he's saying this. And what do the disciples think this to mean? They look at each other and they're saying, he's upset because we forgot to bring bread. Christ is upset because we forgot to bring bread on this little journey up the mountain. The same Christ who made enough bread to feed 5,000 and then the very next day 4,000. He's upset. I always say, like, I feel like Christ sometimes, sometimes I feel like Christ went out of his way to find the most uneducated, most infuriating people to be his followers. <laughs> the most frustrating people he could think of. But he responded to them with frustration. Weren't you there when I fed the 5,000? Weren't you there when I fed the 4,000? He gets frustrated when we don't remember. He said, I even left you a reminder. I, left, I let you go home with some of the baskets. Everyone took a basket home. What, you forgot it? You think I care about the bread? And we frustrate him the same way when we forget his work in our lives. You know, we think we're about to fail an exam. This is me. <laughs> we think we're about to fail an exam and then, you know, lo and behold, God supports me. And his grace allows me to pass. 
I study again for the next exam. I think I'm about to fail again. God, this time I definitely failed. Lo and behold, I pass. There's been a few failures in between, definitely. But I forget what God has done for me in the past. I forget His mercy and His grace in the past. Every now and then, God gives us a gentle tap. He forces us to He puts us in a corner, a forked move. He forces us to remember because He wants to encourage us. He wants to motivate a change in our lives. And just so one quick practical point um, that was taught to me a long time ago, whenever God does anything in your life, write it down immediately and revisit that memory often. Whenever you feel low, whenever you feel down, whenever you're struggling with anything, revisit that journal often and remember how God has been working in your life. Can we read verses 14 to 16, please? Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. We'll just stop there. Um, the thing I love most about Joseph's response here is that it's the same thing. So this verse where he says, um, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. It is the same thing that essentially he said to the butler two years earlier. In chapter 40, he says, the butler and the baker say, we have each had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Do not interpretations belong to God. The reason I love that he repeats this is because Joseph has every right to feel like he's been shorthanded. Can you imagine how resentful or bitter you'd be in those two years after the butler was restored? You'd feel resentful. I'm never interpreting a dream again. I'm never offering my services to anyone again. Um, he might have even felt in this moment that, you know what, I'm going to get my own this time. This is a good opportunity in front of Pharaoh to take a little bit of credit um, so that maybe he would let me go. To take a little bit of glory for myself. Yes, yes, I interpreted the butler's dream. I can probably do the same for you. Or he could have used it as an opportunity to elevate himself, um, to talk about how he was falsely imprisoned and then he interpreted the dreams. But he doesn't. He doesn't do any of that. He never changes his original behavior. He elevates God in this moment, just as he's always done before. I was just sitting with a Aub, and he mentioned something really nice about Joseph. When I told him the Bible story was on Joseph, he said, I love Joseph because aside from his naivety when he was younger, he never makes any mistakes. You don't read about any mistakes that he makes. He remains unchanged always because he lives his life seeking to please God and not anyone else. It doesn't matter. As long as my life is for God, nothing that the people around me do or say 
changes how I act. Nothing changes how he acted. When the whole world is changing around you, and it is changing around us, every day we see it changing, the important thing is that we stay faithful to what is right. We stay faithful to what we know is true and trust that God will eventually reward that faithfulness, even if it takes a long time, even if it's an agonizing wait. There's a phrase in chess, it is known as control. Um, it's a phrase that's usually assigned to either a piece or a square on the board that is dominated by one player. But it can also be used to describe the player that has the momentum of the game on their side. Joseph here, right now, is take, given an opportunity to take full control and elevate himself in front of Pharaoh, who he knows has the power to release him. Um, he could very easily have used it as an opportunity to negotiate. Listen, Pharaoh, I'm happy to interpret your dreams. No problem. That's easy for me. I just need you to get me out of prison. Maybe he could have asked for more. Why stop at prison? You know? Pharaoh, I'm going to need a house. I'm going to need somewhere to stay, somewhere to live. Could have used it as an opportunity to negotiate. But he didn't. He left the control of this entire chess match to the chess master, just as he's always done. St. John Chrysostom says, Don't suspect that I utter... This is um, him quoting Joseph. Don't suspect that I utter anything of myself or interpret them by human wisdom. There is in fact no way of coming to knowledge of them without revelation from on high. So be aware that without God, it is not possible for me to give you a reply. Without God, the text says, Pharaoh will not be given the right solution. So now that you know that the Lord of all is the one who gives this revelation, don't look for something from human beings, that God alone has it in his power to bring to light. Even though Joseph has, up until now, been punished every single time he was faithful to God, um, he continues to be faithful to God. And I've been thinking a lot about this point today. That it's hard, it is hard to be faithful and it is hard to be a Christian in the world today. It's difficult. It's hard to remain pure when all we are being fed is impure thoughts and impure material on the internet. It is hard to be honest when people so easily and so frequently lie to get ahead. Um, it is hard to deny yourself in a world that tells you you need to get your own. It's hard to do that. It's hard to forgive others when they've hurt you. It's hard to do that. It's hard to be a Christian in the world today. But what we see in the life of Joseph is that by remaining faithful, even when it's hard, we allow God full control of our lives and we see the plan that he has in store for each of us and only now will we begin to see what God has in store for Joseph. So I'll read now verses 17 to 36, please. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, 
poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I've ever, never seen in all, of, in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had, had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I, so I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Keep reading. Oh, yeah, keep reading. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Okay, so what's happened here? So Pharaoh's explained his dreams, and Joseph does something really interesting. Verse 25, he says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32. The dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. In all of this, Joseph mentions his name once. And, in, and the context was, in verse 28, this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And he concludes all of these interpretations by saying, let Pharaoh select a man. Let Pharaoh select a man. And then he proceeds to not only not mention his own name, not put himself in the running, um, but to give the entire plan for the next seven years. Why is this important? 
this constant mention of God and this no mention of himself. He is leaving it up to Pharaoh to choose the man um, and by leaving it up to Pharaoh to make that decision, he's effectively giving him the choice to choose God um, or to reject him. You can choose me, but just know that I serve God before anyone else. He made that very clear to him. You choose me, who's interpreted your dreams, who's given you the blueprint for the next seven years, but just know that I serve God. Um, it's a sacrificial play, one that you would make in a chess game. Because he's taking a risk on Pharaoh. He's taking a gamble, hoping not that he would be impressed with the fact that he has the gift of interpreting the dreams, but that he would be more impressed with the person who grants him that gift. Do you see the difference? He doesn't want him to be impressed with the gift that he has. He wants him to be impressed with the gifter. I don't want people to see um, my talents in the world. I want people in the world to see Christ through my talents, to see him working in my everyday actions. That's what I want. That is true faithfulness to Christ. Um, and look how Pharaoh responds to this approach from Joseph. I'll just read verses 37 to 39. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as, as, as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. So effectively saying, I accept that God is the one working in you. And for that reason, for that reason, I choose you. Not because you interpreted the dreams, not because you gave wise counsel, but because both of those things were made possible through you working with God, through God working through you. St. Ephraim says, Joseph became great in the eyes of Pharaoh through his interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, but even more through the beneficial counsel that his mind had devised through God. That is why he found favor in Pharaoh's eyes. Um, if someone can please read verses 40 to 46. Um, you shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the lands of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Then he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the lands of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the lands of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephnaphaneh, <laughs> and he gave him as a wife Asina, <laughs> um, the daughter of Potiphar's priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the lands of Egypt. And just verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the lands of Egypt. In chess, there is another term 
known as promotion. Does anyone know what that is? Joey? Very good. It's when you get your pawn to the end of the board and you're able to replace it um, with any other piece. It can be anything. It can become anything. You can promote your pawn to a rook, uh, a bishop, a queen, whatever you like. Um, it effectively elevates the player promoting the pawn in the game because it means that they can bring another powerful piece onto the board. And the trick to promoting your pawn is two things again. It's the same two things that we said right at the beginning are important in a chess match. Patience and strategy. It takes time to get this piece that moves only one step forward each time to the end of the board. It takes strategy to defend it. You have to defend it as it makes its way to the end of the board. It takes time. It's not easy. Keep that in mind. Now, let's pretend that the butler never forgot Joseph. Let's pretend that the butler came out of prison, went straight to Pharaoh and told him, Joseph, because I remember his name because I was just with him yesterday. Joseph is in prison. You got to get him out. He interpreted my dreams. How could that story potentially go? It could go one of three ways, I think, if he never forgot. One of three ways. One, the Pharaoh could look at him and be like, when? When did I ask? Like, I don't care who that guy is. He's done nothing for me. Just a Hebrew guy in my, my prison. I don't care. He could be merciful and say, you know, all right, whatever. Tell the prison guard to let him out. Or he could be extra generous and say, okay, you want to get him out? Get him out. He's been falsely accused. Like, let's make it up to him. Let's make him a dinner. Let's have a little banquet for him. Make him feel like, you know, we made a mistake. Forgive us. Like, let's just welcome him back to the real world. Those are the three ways that story would have gone. And the third way you'd think, wow, that's incredible. Right? But don't forget, Joseph will be homeless. <laughs> He'll be, you know, a convict. So he might not be able to get a job. That's as good as it would have gotten for him. By waiting, by being patient, Joseph is able to see God's strategy take shape in his life. Um, God didn't want to just reinstate Joseph. He wanted to promote him. He didn't just want to restore him. He wanted to elevate him. Um, all he required from Joseph was a little bit of patience and essentially just saying to him, leave the strategy to me. You, all you, all you are required to do is to be patient, leave the strategy to me. And God may be making you wait um, for something too. Perhaps you're in a period of waiting. Perhaps you're waiting for some kind of breakthrough in your career. And you've been waiting and you've been struggling for a long time. But God is making you wait. Perhaps you're waiting to restore a broken relationship or some kind of difficulty that you have with people around you. And perhaps God is making you wait.
There may be something that you're waiting for. And the problem with waiting, the period of waiting, is that it can sometimes feel very lonely. It can sometimes feel extremely heartbreaking. Especially when God makes you wait a long time. But the lesson that we learn from the story of Joseph, Joseph is that in the waiting, there is hope. When I am patient, when I lean on the plan of God for my life, during my period of waiting, there is hope. I found the song when we were singing Amazing Grace, I found the words very relevant to the story of Joseph. It says, my chains are gone, I've been set free. And then two lines later, and like a flood, his mercy reigns. Because after the period of waiting, God doesn't just give us a dribble. He doesn't just open the tap a little bit. He floods us with his mercy. He floods us with his great grace because we were patient. Because we leaned on him. Even when it was tough. Even when it was really difficult. Even when it was hard to hold on to hope. Because we were patient. Because we held on to him. He floods us with mercy. And I found this quote by John Chrysostom after I decided to use the word promotion in tonight's talk. It says, See how all of a sudden the prisoner is made king of the whole of Egypt. The one sent to prison by the chief steward was raised by the king to the highest rank. His former master suddenly saw that the man whom he had cast into prison as an adulterer was awarded authority over the whole of Egypt. Do you see how important it is to bear trials, thankfully? Hence, St. Paul also said, Distress promotes patience. Patience promotes character. Character promotes hope. And hope never fails. Hope never fails. God doesn't want to give you the bare minimum. He wants to give you the best. Um, he's not happy with simply restoring you. He's trying to elevate you. He doesn't want you to live like a pawn, but like a queen in his castle. All he requires is a little bit of patience. Um, if we can read from verse 47 to the end, please. Almost finished. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. And the famine was over the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. 
We started today's passage by saying, up until this point, Joseph has had not one win. He has had not one stroke of good luck. And then what do we see? Verse 40, his word is elevated to second below only Pharaoh's. Verse 41, he sets him over the entire land of Egypt. Verse 42, he's clothed in royal garments. Verse 43, he allows him to ride in the chariot. Verse 44, his word is final. Without your consent, no man may lift his hand. Verse 45, it's verse after verse now. Verse 45, he finds a wife. Later down, he's given two sons in the years of the famine. Within the space of less than 10 verses, we see this flood of grace that God pours out onto Joseph because he was patient, because he was faithful. But because his life was so focused on his faithfulness to God, we see how his life, and this is probably the most important thing about the life of Joseph, his greatest win, his life becomes intertwined with the life of Christ. St. Ambrose says, Therefore Joseph, just as the Lord Jesus, taking pity on the hungers of the world, opened his granaries and disclosed the hidden treasures of the heavenly mysteries of wisdom and of knowledge, so that none would lack nourishment. For wisdom says, Come, eat my bread. And only the one who is filled with Christ can say, The Lord feeds me and I shall want nothing. Therefore Christ opened his granaries and sold, while asking not monetary payments but the price of faith and the recompense of devotion. He sold, moreover, not to a few people in Judea, but to all, so that he might be believed by all peoples. Um, Mandy spoke last week about how Joseph was a type of Christ. And she mentioned a few things. The fact that he was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold for a few pieces of silver. He was a slave. He was falsely accused. And today we see that more abundantly than ever. Um, he's promoted as a leader and it specifies that he was 30 years old, the same age that Christ was when he began his ministry. Um, he not only served those in his country, but those beyond, just as Christ served the Gentiles and not the Jews alone. And his purpose, his entire purpose in his story is to do what? It is to provide bread. To provide bread to the hungry, just as Christ came to provide the bread of his life um, to the souls of all the world, which was starving for salvation. None of this is possible if Joseph wasn't imprisoned. None of this happens if he hadn't been given the gift of interpreting dreams. None of this power is given to him if the butler hadn't forgotten him. Um, none of this occurs if Pharaoh wasn't disturbed and nothing would have elevated Joseph if he hadn't remained faithful and patient throughout it all. He trusted in God's strategy because God, like we said right at the beginning, is the ultimate chess master. And we haven't even seen his final play. We haven't even seen his checkmate in Joseph's life. Um, but we learn that by being patient 
in his presence and trusting in his strategy, not only will we be filled with hope, but we see his strategy, his plan for our lives take shape, just as we see in the life of Joseph. Glory be to God forevermore. Amen. Does anyone have any questions? This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.